In the United States, the Center for Disease Control estimates that over 300,000 people get Lyme every year. And that's just in the States. It's the single largest vector-borne disease in America. So how about us Canadians? Where do we rate in the fight against Lyme? And in the type of cutting-edge research that needs to be done? On this Can Lyme podcast, we're headed back to the lab. We're going to the G. Magnata Lab at the University of Guelph, where some of the best research in this country is being done. Dr. Melanie Wills spends a lot of time peering into a microscope. She is the director of the G. Magnata Lyme Lab at the University of Guelph. There they are training the next generation of scientists in microbiology and human disease. And they're also working on the diagnosis, prognosis, and treatment of Lyme. It is cutting-edge stuff, and I am so thrilled she was able to speak with me from Guelph. How did you become interested in Lyme disease research? So that's an interesting question. I actually did a PhD in cell signaling, which is basically uh, the biochemical language that cells in the body use to, to talk to each other. And this is most often associated with things like um, cancer research, but it has a lot of different applications. And that's where my own personal health history really comes into it, because um, I've had chronic illness for much of my life, and I was always really fascinated in seeing how I could apply that um, to my own lived experience, how that would intersect with research, because I recognized uh, for a long time that this was a really underrepresented area in research. It really wasn't getting the attention that it deserved, and I knew that I wanted to go into it in some capacity. Now, Lyme disease was an interesting intersection because it wasn't immediately on my radar, um, and it wasn't until a doctor that I was consulting said, hey, you know what? Your symptoms seem like Lyme disease. Have you explored this? And we had a really good conversation. And I said, I really don't think it's that because, you know, we've been tested. And, and it's, you know, I, I realize that it looks very similar, but I, I don't think it, it could be Lyme disease. And he said, you know, you might want to dig into this a bit more. You might want to look into how they test and, and evaluate it for yourself because you're a scientist. And I did that. And what I found was surprising to me. And I thought, this is an incredibly underrepresented area of research. We really um, we don't know enough here. We're not doing justice to people who have these longstanding conditions. And what a way to bring my own experience into this, um, you know, my PhD, my lived experience, and to carve out a path going forward. How did, the, how did you become involved in the G. Magnata Lyme Disease Research Lab at the University of Guelph? That's another interesting question. Um, once again, there was a lot of serendipity in that, I would say. Um, I was finishing my PhD, and as I mentioned, I was looking at ways of getting involved in Lyme disease research. And I had connected with Dr. Vet Lloyd at Mount Allison University, and, and she and I were doing some work together um, with chronic diseases and really trying to move that dialogue forward. And unbeknownst to me at that same time, Rosanna Magnata was looking at setting up a research program uh, to investigate Lyme disease. 
And so I, I basically got this call out of the blue because I knew uh, Jim Wilson at Canline. And uh, he was part of the uh, Jim Ignata initiative as well. And he said, you know, what do you guys do in terms of um, you know, new technologies to investigate chronic illness and microbial illness? And, and so, we, you know, we kind of had a bit of an exchange. And I think, I mean, I can't speak for what happened uh, on the, on the Jim Ignata side of things, but they were very interested. And they came to the University of Guelph and they toured around. And our um, college and our, our um, department were very, very interested in, in marrying these different things. What research projects are you working on at your lab? Uh, we take a multi-pronged approach to this. And so some of our work is very fundamental. We work with the microbe itself, looking at things like stress response, uh, these questions of the different morphologies that Borrelia can adopt and how that might play a role in disease. So things like round bodies and biofilms, um, gaining a, a better microbiological understanding of those things, what they are, and then, and then their, their translation to the clinic or to the disease. Now, we also have a number of clinically applicable projects that are um, underway right now. Those include looking at genetic predisposition. So if two people get Lyme disease, um, will they have the same trajectory, yes or no? And, and if not, w- to what degree could that be based on the person um, themselves? So there's a lot of evidence to suggest that uh, the, the genetics of the bug plays a big role in how the disease is going to play out. We know very little about how the human genetic side of things, the human uh, response actually dictates the trajectory of the disease except to say that, uh, you know, there's a big inflammatory component. We know that a lot of what people experience is because the body is reacting really badly to the bug. But to what extent uh, might one person be kind of protected from that and another person be kind of more vulnerable to that response? So we're looking at things like that. Now, one of the big thrusts of research in G-Magnata is to understand um, how to develop a better diagnostic test. And so we take, once again, a very fundamental um, translational approach to that, looking at the microbiology and what that means. How, how are we going to find the bug in the body? Are you able to tell us about the research project Canadians with Lyme disease? So we did uh, a survey study I think that's what you're referring to. Yes, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> we have a few Canadians with Lyme disease. Uh, essentially, we launched a survey study a couple of years ago uh, as a partnership with um, epidemiologists in the Department of Population Medicine at the University of Guelph. And the idea here was to get a better understanding of what people were experiencing, both in terms of their health, but also in terms of their trajectory through the medical system. So um, there's a lot of interest in, you know, not only what people are experiencing, but how those experiences might actually be setting them up to move smoothly through medical care or, or not. And so we wanted to understand where those roadblocks were and document them because, you know, there's a lot of discussion about where people are getting stuck, uh, but it's not necessarily formalized. It's not um, collected 
in a way that can be published. And as soon as you begin to compile that information, you have something that you can take to people and say, these are the roadblocks and these are areas that we can address. Right now, health has never been in the forefront of people's minds than ever before. Mm. And it seems that, you know, it gives a lot of people this sense of deja vu with what we're going through with COVID for people like the so-called long haulers. <laughs> Do you have a sense of deja vu with what you're witnessing as well? We have so much deja vu that we've actually set up a research program to study it. <laughs> In January, when this looked like it was, you know, gaining momentum and becoming serious and it was it was hitting internationally, um, the, the patient community, specifically the chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, that community was very, very aware because many of them have said, we feel that we got sick after a viral illness. And, you know, I've seen this as well in my research, in my personal life, that there is an infectious trigger for a lot of symptom sets uh, that look like Lyme disease. And so, unfortunately... Yeah, since early 2020, this was on my radar as uh, a concern. And um, we actually set up with Mount Allison, uh, Dr. Vet Lloyd, a research program to study the chronic complications of COVID and, and to be in a position where we can compare that to Lyme disease and understand if there's you know points of convergence. Now, we're not saying, obviously, that the, the COVID-19 virus is Borrelia burgdorferi. We're not saying that at all, but we're saying that, you know, some of what people are reporting now, unfortunately, looks very similar to Lyme disease. And so are some of the same uh, systems in the body actually, are they being targeted in a sort of convergent way? That's going to be really interesting research to follow. I'm glad that you're doing that. Well, and unfortunately, we never like to think that there's opportunity in these, these horrific situations. But when you listen to the ME-CFS community, they say, well, you know, if anything good is going to come out of this, it's that people are recognizing, they're finally recognizing that there are long-term um, diseases that come out of infection. And, and for so long, these were hidden in the shadows. And now they finally feel sort of somewhat vindicated that, unfortunately, enough people are falling ill that it's not in the shadows anymore. And in your research anywhere, do you look at uh, environmental factors such as exposure to heavy metals? Would that be a consideration? We haven't yet, but I would say that we're in the very early stages. Um, we had to start somewhere. So we're at a point where we're, you know, dipping our toes in. We're trying to figure out all of the different factors that might contribute to something like chronic Lyme disease. So how do people experience it? Why do they experience it? And that is not a straightforward question. And that question, you know, what, what is chronic Lyme disease and everyone in, in that community is not a single scientific question. You have to break that down, as you said, into specific questions, like sub-questions, essentially. And so, you know, environmental exposures are not something that we've actually tested um, in the research lab at this point, but some of our surveys, I think, are getting to the idea of um, what is the entire individual exposed to and what are the other kind of competing factors that might play a role in, in the illness. 
You mentioned earlier that you're working on a new diagnostic tool, and I'd just like to bring our listeners back to going through the basics. So in Canada right now, we have a two-tiered testing system for Borrelia. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me about the strains of Borrelia that are used in that two-tiered test? Well, traditionally, the two-tiered test is uh, an enzyme immunosorbent assay, or ELISA, and then it's followed up with a Western blot if the ELISA is positive or equivocal. So that means, you know, you got a yes on it or you got a, a maybe on it. And traditionally, uh, we would be seeing something that is designed around a laboratory strain of Borrelia. Typically, it's uh, B31, which was a strain of Borrelia that came out of a tick isolated uh, in the 1980s in New York State. And so that means that uh, they're looking, the test is looking, it's an indirect test. So it's looking at your body's reactivity to that organism. And one of the concerns with that, of course, is that these organisms are not identical. Um, What you encounter in nature today might not look exactly like that. And we don't know the extent to which what we would call antigenic variation Um, or even different versions of the same protein, Um, the degree to which you can vary that and still get a positive result. So um, there's a lot of things that we don't like about the test. The fact that it's indirect, uh, measuring your response to a lab strain already makes it uh, less than reflective, I would say, of what's going on. Now, there's all kinds of other issues with the interpretation. So, for example, um, what do you do clinically with the outcome of that test? It's not that straightforward because the test, for example, can't tell you whether you've resolved the infection or whether you have an ongoing infection. So it can't provide a lot of clinical guidance. Uh, Using the immune system also means that you, you don't get a positive result, usually, in the first couple of weeks of infection, even if you have the organism. And that's because the immune system has not had an opportunity to react to the pathogen. So, and and that's a big reason that we're oriented towards uh, completely sidestepping the serology model of diagnostics and going for something that is actually a direct readout of whether you have the infection. What research is happening out there right now that gets you really excited? You know, I think that we're at a point where we are beginning to bring together some of the big technologies, Um, the the omics technologies, for example, this idea that we can get a very detailed view of something in the body and that we don't need to go in and look for specific uh, markers with a tool that is designed against that marker. The fact that we can go in and ask, what is in this population? What is here? Um, so this whole idea of the meta-genome, um, that is beginning to be applied to infectious disease. It's beginning to make its way into Lyme disease research. Um, that's going to be, I think, a game changer. Other elements are, you know, asking the question, bringing the microbiology and the clinical application together and asking the question, how could you have Uh, persistent diseases that are driven by persistent organisms in the body? What are those mechanisms? And can we target them with pharmaceuticals? 
If you could look into the future five or 10 years, what would success look like to you? (laughs) I think there are a number of ways to answer that. But, you know, as a scientist, I'm going to say, number one, it's bringing more high-quality work to the table to inform decision-making, to provide better clinical guidance, uh, to provide therapeutic options. And sociologically, it's breaking down barriers. Um, One of the, the big issues right now in the Lyme disease research field is that it's, it's very siloed and very polarized. And that, that is not intrinsically good for progress. Um, there's a lot of push and shove. And, you know, I think we would move a lot faster if people were all truly invested in, in developing solutions for a better future instead of arguing over <laughs> Uh, details right now. I mean, we have to develop high-quality science. There's no question about that. But uh, right now, the political landscape is the challenge to that. And so I would say, you know, success is um, bringing better tools to the table, but also bringing better mindsets and and being more open to possibilities. Um, It doesn't mean that you don't rigorously check your signs, that you don't critique your signs, but it means that it's always done with an attitude of moving things forward and making things better. And I'm just going to add to it that I think the way that we can be more successful too is to actually have funding designated for Lyme disease research and these inflammatory responses that are happening. Absolutely. Uh, Funding has been another big issue with Lyme disease because, you know, it's a challenge if people don't see the impact of the disease uh, and you're competing against all kinds of other horrific diseases. Uh, what makes Lyme disease stand out, particularly if it's framed as something that you get from the tick and you can get good, prompt intervention and you're going to get better? Um, that story, that narrative is not one that intrinsically motivates people to, number one, be concerned about Lyme disease or to, to be motivated, you know, to donate money to Lyme disease. Um, that, by and large, is not the patient group who comes to us and says, we're very, very ill, we've been ill for a long time, we don't know what's going on, we think that we have a very complex, multifaceted disease, what can you do about it? Um, that's, a cha- that's a more challenging scientific question, and it's also not the one that's necessarily the prevalent narrative in society. So Lyme disease does suffer from a lot of optics issues, I would say, um, that, that don't make it necessarily intrinsically fundable. And yet what you have here is a microorganism that, you know, on the scale of, of um, our scientific knowledge, it's not that well known. There's a lot of knowledge that's generated on model microorganisms, and that doesn't necessarily translate well because Borrelia is physiologically different. And so if you don't invest specifically in Borrelia microbiology, you, you don't necessarily really know what's going on here. Absolutely. Well, I think that we can work together to change those optics and continue to support you and all of the amazing people in your lab that are doing such important work for Canadians. And I just really want to thank you for your time and sharing your expertise and your knowledge. Well, my pleasure. And I, I hope so too. I really do believe 
in a brighter future for this disease. And, and yes, it's a challenge, uh, but I think we're up, we're up to it. That was great to hear some Canadian homegrown research. I'm delighted that they're working on developing a new diagnostic tool as that will support physicians in their work. Thank you so much, Dr. Wills, for your time and expertise, and together we will work to change the optics here in Canada. That's another podcast of Looking at Lyme. Stay safe in the outdoors. <laughs>